Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 696 with John Petricelli. And I think you're full of BS, bullshnikey. We are censoring just to keep distribution in as many countries as possible. I know you're grownups, but that's what we're talking about, is we're talking about BS, stuff that isn't lying per se, and yet is rather harmful. How to detect it and do better with it and make all the wiser decisions for it. We've got a master of the art, John Petricelli, joining us, and you'll learn, one, why BS is more damaging than you think, two, three ways to sharpen your BS detector, and three, six clarifying questions to help you call out BS. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, do drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP696. And here's John's story. John V. Petricelli is an experimental social psychologist and professor of psychology at Wake Forest University. His research examines the causes and consequences of BS and BSing in the way of better understanding and improving BS detection and disposal. He's the author of The Life-Changing Science of Detecting BS, and Petricelli's research contributions also include attitudes and persuasion and the intersections of counterfactual thinking with learning, memory, and decision-making. His research has appeared in the top journals of his field, including the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Petricelli also serves as an associate editor of the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. Big thanks to John for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. John, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into the wisdom of your book, The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. And we're going to be ducking the S word a bit just so that the podcast will not be censored and unavailable in certain countries. So BS or bullshit, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. And you say you've come from a long line of bullshitters. What's sort of your backstory here? I think everybody does, actually. Actually, when I tell people what I do in my, my work, most people have readily available <laughs> examples of how, you know, their friend or their colleague or their Uncle Larry is the world's greatest bullshit artist. And <laughs> or half the time, it's Maurice on the second floor in marketing in their company. And people usually have these ready-made examples, and they're convinced. They all seem to know the same person. So I'm convinced that we're, we are constantly surrounded by BS artists. And in general, I think most people uh, are, I wouldn't call most people B 
BTS artist, but the average individual, I think, generates their fair share of BS themselves. So it's everywhere. It's in every walk of life. And it's something that I think uh, is not as harmless as we like to think. Usually we say, oh, Pete's just BSing us or or we're just sitting out here on the porch BSing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But we often think that it doesn't have the devastating effect that it can actually have for our wallets or for our career decisions, for our interpersonal decisions, really all over the place. You're going to find this insidious communicative substance that we that we often refer to as BS. Okay, well, well, I want to definitely hear about the impact and the damage and what's at stake here. But first, you've got a, a bit more of a precise definition than I think most of us do. So how precisely do you define what is bullshit and how is it distinctive from just straight up lying or fraud? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I use I use Harry Frankfurt's original definition. He was a philosopher at Princeton University, and in 1986 he wrote a book, or actually in 1986 he wrote a, a small article turned book 15 years later, and the title of the book was called On Bullshit, and that's where he defined BS and the definition that I use, which is simply a, a communicative substance that emerges when people communicate about things that they know little to nothing about and in which they have no regard or concern for what we would call truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. And so so the behavior of BSing is often characterized by a wide range of rhetorical strategies designed to communicate without any regard for truth, evidence, or established knowledge. And that might come out in the form of exaggerating one's competence or their knowledge or their skills in a domain, or it may come out in the form of trying to impress others, fit in with others, influence or persuade them, or to embellish or to confuse or or to simply hide the fact that they really don't know what they're talking about. That's a pretty broad definition, but the core of it, again, is, is simply talking about things that one really doesn't know much about and doesn't have any regard for truth, evidence, or established knowledge. And that's, that's very different from lying because when we lie, we actually, to do it successfully, we have to know what the truth is, right? If I want to detract you from the truth, it's a good idea to, to know what the facts are. So the liar is usually concerned about the truth or they, they know the truth where as the BSer doesn't care. Okay. They don't have any, they pay no attention to truth and uh, they could care less. And in fact, by definition, what the liar says is categorically false to the extent that they, that they do know the truth and they successfully tell us something that's, that's false. But if the BSer is truly BSing, they may by chance accidentally say something that is correct. Right. Okay. But even the BSer wouldn't know it, right? Because they're not paying any attention to truth, established knowledge, or or evidence. And the, the social reaction too. The social reaction that people have towards BSing and lying is completely different. So usually, if a friend or a colleague lies to us and we we find out that they've lied, we respond with anger or great disdain. And they're they're going to have to tell quite a few truths in the future. 
right, to gain our trust back. But with BSing, often we let it slide. We give the BSer a social pass of acceptance that because we often think it's harmless. Rarely do we say, oh, we're out here sitting on the porch lying to one another, <laughs> right? Or that Pete's lying, right? Because lying oftentimes is associated with fighting words, right? But BSing is, is just, we assume that it doesn't have the same negative effect. Mm-hmm. But not only my own research, but certainly lots and lots of examples where people have lost money, they've made very poor decisions in their life, in their work, and their interpersonal relationships that are truly grounded in BS. And I'm convinced I've got treasure troves of data now, Pete, in my experiments from thousands of participants and looking at what they write about, no matter what types of events I ask them to write about and explain why they have the opinions and attitudes that they have. I'm convinced that the personal, interpersonal, professional, and societal problems that we have are often rooted in indirectly or directly in mindless BS reasoning and communication. And being so closely married to BS preferences and so adverse to truth comes at a great consequence to decision-making. All right. Well, so then let's hear it then. If uh, lies or fraud really does sound a lot worse than BS, but you're saying there's a lot at stake, can you share with us some of the most hard-hitting data points, uh, studies that show, hey, this is actually really damaging? Absolutely. So what I've focused on in my own research is what people believe to be true. Okay. Because truth, what you believe to be true is fundamental to the decisions that you make, right? So in my experiments, I've used very simple statements that can be readily recognized as true or false and demonstrated as true or false. And I give people false statements like, Sydney is the capital city of Australia. How interesting is that? Steinbeck is the author of The Agony and the Ecstasy. How interesting is that to you? Okay, so now both of those statements are false. And when you mix those with a lot of other statements, what you will find is what, what we call a, an illusory truth effect. So people will overestimate how true something is just because it sounds familiar. And what we find is when we say that, well, the author of those statements that you read, the author was told to lie on some of them. They were told to write half of them that are true and half of them that are false. All right. And so now we want you to determine whether or not these statements are true or false. And another condition, what we do is we say, well, the author of these statements, they were asked to write half of the statements that are, are true, and then the other half, not to really worry about truth and not to worry about fact-checking how true these things are. You can really just write whatever comes to mind, right? And then we look at the illusory truth effect in that case, right? And what we find is that when the author is BSing, you get a stronger illusory truth effect. So people are much more likely to tag things as false if they're told, well, some of these things are lies. But they do treat the BS differently. It's tagged as potentially true or potentially false. It's not categorically tagged mentally as false as we do lies. Like if I tell you I just lied to you 
about a fact, well, then you know that it's false, right? But if I said, mm-hmm. hey, I just BS'd you on that, it's possible it, to the extent that it sounds feasible and plausible, it could be true, right? So people treat those things differently. Then we also find that in, in some cases, if the conditions are right, that BS can be quite persuasive, even in comparison to strong arguments for an issue. So we have compared what we call evidence-based communication with BS communication. So evidence-based communication is the exact opposite of BS, right? It is grounded in truth, genuine evidence, and established knowledge. Now, if I give you two arguments that are strong, and in one case I tell you, I'm concerned with the evidence. I've actually looked this up. I've actually considered what the data look like, right? What the readily available data look like. That's the strongest strong arguments that you can produce. But if I said, I don't care what the, the research suggests. I don't care what the data is on this issue. This is what I believe. And I say the same, same exact thing. Now I've weakened the strong arguments. All right. So that, that makes sense, right? But with weak arguments, if I could say, well, yeah, I think we should have comprehensive exams at our university as a requirement for graduation for these reasons. And one of the reasons is, well, Duke University is doing it. (laughs) That's a weak argument. Now, if I give you evidence-based cues to that same argument in comparison to BS-based cues of the same arguments, there's no difference, right? There's no difference in evidence-based and BS-based cues and the potency that it has on your attitudes. So BS tends to weaken strong arguments, but if anything, it strengthens weak arguments. Yeah. And we think that this happens because people tend to shut down. When, when you know that someone is BSing you, they've given you enough cues that they don't really know what they're talking about, and they really don't have an interest in the truth, people tend to shut down. And if anything, they will change, their attitudes will be influenced by what we call peripheral cues, how attractive someone is, maybe how tall they are, how quickly they talk, what their authority position is, their perceived credibility, right? Hmm. That's not where people recognize the difference between strong and weak arguments. So BS tends to get people in a perspective or a mode of thinking in which they're really not thinking very well. And they're not thinking very clearly about the strengths of arguments. And they don't even recognize the difference between the strengths of arguments. So those are really big problems. So I guess therein lies the danger, is that because we're susceptible to this, weak arguments and plus a lot of BS results in many, many suboptimal decisions being made (laughs) <laughs> everywhere and at all times yes. that uh, discourse is, is occurring. And thusly, it, it's a whole lot of damage cumulatively. Is that kind of your take? Yeah. And we've studied this also in, in a procedure that we call the sleeper effect. So if I tell you really great things about what we call an attitude object, in our studies, we've used a pizza, a gluten-free pizza. And we tell you all these great things about this gluten-free pizza and how great it tastes and how healthy it is, right? Mm-hmm. And then we tell you, we want to know what your attitude is. We'll, we'll see that people have attitudes about Chow's pizza that's rather positive, mm-hmm. right? But then we say, oh, there's a consumer protection agency that did a study and they found out that the Chow's pizza marketing team, well, they lied. They lied on three things and here they are, right? Now, over time, 
you have two pieces of information now, right? So initially the attitude was positive, but then you've been given a discounting cue, right? They tell you you've been lied to. So immediately people reduce their attitude. They say, all right, well, Chow's Pizza is not so great then, right? But two weeks later, when we survey people's attitudes about Chow's Pizza again, what we find is sort of a rebounding effect, which is the attitude becomes more positive closer to the positivity that it initially was. And the idea is, is that people forget the discounting cue faster than they forget the initial information that was positive. Mm-hmm. Right. So now if I tell you in the same paradigm, oh, consumer protection agency found that Chow's Pizza marketing team was bullshitting. And they don't even know if it's true that most people love this pizza and it has all of these great qualities. Again, the attitudes are reduced, but two weeks later, it's even stronger and actually at the same level that a control condition who had never gotten the discounting cue in the first place. So here now we have a case where what discounted the initial information is completely forgotten and it's no longer worked into the attitude. So People will say to you, well, you've got to hear these false things maybe 16 times. I used to believe that. Well, it's not true that you have to hear it 16 times to believe it. You only have to hear it one time. The same thing happens in the illusory truth paradigm. You only have to present these falsities one time for people then to confuse them, either confuse them as true because they sound familiar, or they forget the false piece of the information and the the part that sounds true. It remains, and it, and it comes back to shape attitudes. Okay. And again, what we think is true is would be devastating to decision-making. Understood. Well, so that paints a really clear picture then in terms of just given how we interact with information and conversation, how we can form perspectives on what is true that are not at all appropriate or actually true. And that could sort of have all kinds of cascade negative impacts. So then what do you recommend we do in terms of as we're navigating life, doing research, making decisions to as much as possible become immune to the negative effects of this BS? Yes. Well, one of the first things I think that is critical to that is accepting the possibility that that we are susceptible to BS and the unwanted effects of BS. So that's one of the biggest problems with BS is that people feel, one, that they can detect it, and that, two, it really isn't harmful and it doesn't affect them very much. But my research suggests they couldn't be more wrong, right? So the first step would be accepting some susceptibility to it. And in fact, there is a lot of research, research we call the the Dunning-Kruger effect, that has been studied for over 20 years now that suggests that the people who are most confident in their abilities in a particular cognitive domain are oftentimes the most susceptible, not only to BS, but also they're most likely to overestimate their actual skills, right? So the cognitive skills that you need to be competent in a domain are the same cognitive skills that you need to recognize competence. So often the most Confident people that they think that they're protected against BS and deception, often those are the easiest people to dupe with the BS. So, so that'd be the first thing. The second thing I think is recognizing the difference between explanation and evidence. Explanation and evidence are two totally different things, right? If you ask people why 
they believe what they believe, oftentimes they will go into explanation. They'll give you reasons why they believe what they do. They'll talk about values. They'll talk about things that are rather abstract and sort of the heady things, right? They'll talk conceptually. They won't give you boots on the ground, hard evidence demonstrating the process as to how they came to the conclusions that they've come to. So evidence is something that verifies or demonstrates or supports a claim or an assertion. And people often treat the two things very similarly, but they are very different. So recognizing the difference between those two things. And then I think the third thing would be to ask questions, to simply just ask questions. I cannot tell you how much money I have actually saved myself showing that asking these basic questions actually work. And they're basic, they're really basic critical thinking 101 skills. And the first question that I would ask when you suspect, well, I may have just been exposed to some BS, is to ask the communicator what, what exactly is the claim, to clarify the claim. And what you will often find, and my research shows this, and my own personal experience, I can tell you that that people will often take a couple of backpedal steps and they'll start to clean up the boat immediately because they say, all right, someone's interested in my claim, right? And maybe they want to kind of hedge it. They want to qualify it in some ways. So clarification is a, a strong antidote to bullshit. So just ask what? So when you clarify the claim, can you give us an example? Is that that's just as simple as say, wait a second, John. So were you claiming precise sentence? And then they say, well, you're saying that's all it takes? Well, oftentimes that's all it takes. Okay. If they tell you, well, there's going to be some changes in this company, no jobs will be lost. Well, what do you mean? At what level? What exactly are you talking about? Are you talking about this month or this year or what? Just to ask clarification, what questions? And just to get people to talk about it, to clarify the claim. And once you get through what, which is nice because you can immediately expose yourself to less BS if they they are willing to clean that up for you. But you'd ask, well, how? How is it that you have come to this conclusion? I'm really interested in your claim or your, your assertion. How do you know? So if you ask how, what people will usually do is they will provide for you a more concrete level of abstraction, and they will talk about actual evidence, if it is readily available or if they can recall some from memory or if they can access it. Now, a lot of times they're not able to do that. If they're truly BSing, they probably haven't really thought through or gone through a logical, rational process to come to the conclusion. So you just ask how. How do you know this? Or how is it that you know this? And then the third question would be to ask, well, have you considered any other alternatives? I hear you saying X, Pete, but what about Y? (laughs) Don't these conflict? How do you reconcile these differences? Mm -hmm. And all three of these questions are essentially designed to diagnose the communicator's actual interest in truth, genuine evidence, and established knowledge. Uh And if they're unable to answer these questions, I mean, people are very very reasonable yeah. when they've got enough information. Now, if they rely on what they usually rely on, which is just their own personal or, or professional experience, they'll often ignore the fact 
that personal experience is often very, very messy. It's a very, very messy data collection method, right? It provides data that's random, that is unrepresentative, it's ambiguous, it's oftentimes it's incomplete or inconsistent, indirect, and often surprising or counterattitudinal, not, not, not something that we necessarily want to think or want to believe. Right. And that's not a good way to collect data. Understood. And I love that example associated with, hey, there's going to be some changes, no jobs will be lost. The distinction between BSing and a lie, it's a lie if they, he knows darn well. Exactly. <laughs> Dozens of people are going to get laid <laughs> off within a few months versus BSing, which is like, hey, he's got a general sense that we're probably going to be okay. Yes, exactly. So, but that if you're considering your own job opportunities and economic situation, that's not good enough. And so, with those questions, the what and the how and have you considered? I could really just kind of imagine, you know, what a great answer versus a poor answer is like, <laughs> are you saying that no jobs will be lost over the next year? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're pretty sure there probably shouldn't be any. It's just like, oh, that's a bad answer versus yes, we're absolutely certain there'll be zero jobs. Okay, that's a commitment. And then how have you come to know this is like, well, hey, we've taken a look at our cash flows with our reduced revenue situation that we're at from the pandemic or whatever negative event, and we are still cash flow positive, so we have no trouble making our payroll over the course of, of the next year. And then have you considered, well, hey, what happens if it gets a little bit worse? Like, yes, well, we have a couple years of reserves uh -huh. <laughs> and savings to work with. Yep. So even if it gets a little worse, we should be okay. Now, th those are great answers versus Versus, yeah, no, we're feeling pretty good about this. <laughs> you know, exactly. Hey, this exactly. thing should turn around any week now, really. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. You don't actually know. And then, yeah, that's kind of makes it all clear for me. The distinction between the, the lying and the BSing is that's where it is. And then in some ways, though, John, what, what would be your take on this is if someone acknowledged up front, like, hey, I'm just speculating about this, but here's my read on things right now. It seems like that could diffuse a good amount of the dangers of, of BS. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I'm total agreement with you, Pete, because in that case, you have communicated that you are actually interested in the truth mm -hmm. and reality, right? But you don't actually know for sure, right? You haven't given this vague, ambiguous, pseudo-profound answer that everyone is hoping to hear, and you've been specific about your interest in the truth. And so mm -hmm. exactly. If you say you qualify, I'm, I'm only speculating. I don't actually have the data. I haven't consulted other available sources yet. And I don't know this for sure, but here's my sense. Mm -hmm. Here is my opinion so far, Yeah, but it's not well-informed. So that's one of the problems with BS is that people are often so ready to offer BS because in our communicative culture, there's an underlying implicit assumption that we are supposed to have opinions about everything, right? <laughs> but it's impossible to have a well-informed opinion oh, yeah. about everything, right? Absolutely. And everything is so large now. It's especially since the dawn of the internet, we're supposed to have opinions about seemingly countless things now, uh, or otherwise we're just, we don't sound interesting. We are non-factors in conversations, and that doesn't bode very well, especially with people with a high need to belong to the various groups that, that they do belong to. Yeah, the need to belong, to appear competent, 
and to like, you must have an opinion on these things. And it's funny as, as I'm imagining, if someone asks me, you're changing my worldviews, John, good work. If someone asks me a question, <laughs> I don't really know the answer to, I think it might be refreshing if I were to say, I can only offer you speculation on that. Would you like to hear it or not? <laughs> and, and then it's like, yes. I'm not going to be offended if you say, you know, no, I don't want to hear your speculation. And I'd probably yeah. appreciate being asked if I'm on the receiving end of that. Yes. That's good. Well, tell me any other, I, I love those three, the very prescriptive questions, the, the what, the how have you come to know this and the have you considered. Are any other key words, phrases, questions, scripts that you, you find super helpful as you, you navigate this, both as the, the BSer or the recipient of the BS? Yes, I gave you examples of when you can communicate directly with the, the potential BSer, right? But mm -hmm. there's lots of cases where we're exposed to BS where we can't communicate directly with them. Yeah, it's just on the internet. And there's another basic critical thinking skills 101 three-point question, and that is, well, who? Who am I getting this information? You know, who is telling me this? Or mm -hmm. who is the claim coming from? What is their expertise? What is their credibility? Okay. Mm -hmm. So you start with who? Well, then the next question is, now you're back. Well, how do they know? <laughs> mm -hmm. How is it that they possibly came to this conclusion? You know, is there anything in their, their presentation or their assertion, their claim that they have communicated? that would hint at how it is they would know this, given their credibility, their, their level of expertise. And what? Back to what? <laughs> but this time is what agenda might they have? What are they trying to sell me? What are they trying to sell us? So now instead of, of what, how, and have you considered, you can just sort of just mentally go through, well, who's telling this? How do they know? And what are they trying to sell me? What's their agenda? And it's also useful to turn these kinds of questions onto ourselves. Yeah. All right. Because one of the most potent BSers that we'll ever meet in our lives is ourselves. Yeah. It's the BS that, that often goes unchallenged. It's the BS that we tell ourselves things that we would like to believe that just ain't so half the time, <laughs> probably half the time. So it's good to turn these questions onto the self and say, well, what level of evidence do I actually have? And do I have any? Mm -hmm. What am I basing this on? Do I have anything conclusive that actually leads me to this conclusion? Yeah. And what about other people? What about my friends and colleagues? Do they have the same beliefs? They have an important perspective too. What about asking them? Collecting more data instead of just remaining in one's box in one's head can do wonders for the types of data collection that are needed to combat the BS that we hand ourselves. Mm -hmm. What this brings back for me is I remember I needed to get a new roof and I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I and I was having trouble getting someone to show up. So I was like, to heck with it. I'm calling every roofer <laughs> that I can. So as so I called like 20 and sure enough, I had like five show up. So it's like, hey, that worked. Nothing succeeds like excess. And, but then they were de telling me contradictory things like, oh, you got to tear this off. No, you don't need to tear it off. You can put another layer. And then it's like, oh, you can just put a coating on the top. You don't need to do any more material at all other than a coating. And so it's like, well, how the heck am I? I don't know anything about roofing. <laughs> you're the roofing masters and you're telling me completely different things. How do I get to the heart of this? And it was tricky. It's sort of like, but I guess I followed your your principles in terms of what was their agenda. And so when someone told me, 
Like, hey, I can't work on your roof until you fix this masonry situation over there. You're just going to have leaking. I was like, okay, well, this guy's walking away for perfectly good money. So I think that's probably true. So, so looking at the agenda, such part of the story. And then someone else actually offered evidence like, hey, do you see how this is sagging? And do you see from this side angle, there's already three layers? Well, the Chicago that's building right. code only allows yes. for this many. He's like, okay, now that's some evidence. And it was funny how, in hindsight, yeah, and it's a picture of your roof, not someone else's roof. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, it, it's funny how, in hindsight, like that's what cuts through the clutter. But because I felt overwhelmed and it was a large expense, and uh, uh, these are the experts who are contradicting each other, I found it very stressful. But by following your your guiding lights, there, I probably could have been very like, okay, I'm just dis- disregarding what you say and you say, and getting the mason and repairing it off. And hey, that was easy. Could have been a lot quicker. <laughs> yes. Well, I would say, Pete, you did. exactly the right thing in that situation. And it sounds like you asked a lot of follow-up questions. And that is another antidote to BS, because only through follow-up questions are you going to reveal the inconsistencies and are you going to reveal other things about a person's personality and their agenda that will come through if you just if you follow up with as many follow up questions as you can i had a similar instance recently where i had to have uh, a breaker box to our ac unit mm-hmm. switched and i had two separate electricians come out the first one said that it was basically a $2000 repair they wanted to replace the entire two breaker panel and I thought, wow, gee, that's, that's really expensive. I, I'm going to have to definitely get a second opinion on that. But I went out with him, and we looked at it. He explained everything. And I asked him so many questions, Pete. By the time he left, he was coaching me on how to speak with the home warranty <laughs> representative on the phone on what to say and what not to say. Because it ended up being a, a really a minor repair that cost $80. Okay. <laughs> there was no damage to the breakers were actually a mismatch. There were sort of apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. And we discovered this, but there hadn't been any damage to the box itself. So I could suspect that with something that I, I thought, well, this probably won't be more than a couple hundred dollars repair. And then all of a sudden it's 2000 My detector went off, right? <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I just asked questions. I asked again, I said, well, show me what that looks like. Because he said there was damage. But when he pulled them out, they looked brand new to me. You know, So mm-hmm. it was harder for him to then continue following down that path. There didn't appear to be any burning or there didn't, there didn't appear to be any, any marks. They looked brand new. And so just asking questions. We did the same thing with what I've called the, the masters, the well-trained artists, the BS artists of all time must be people who sell timeshare. Mm-hmm. agreements for vacations, hotels. It's marriage insurance, John. Yeah. <laughs> Can you put a price on that? <laughs> yeah. So these people are highly trained BS artists. So they will bring you in to maybe Myrtle Beach for two nights. They give you a free two nights to stay, right? And they'll say, all right, well, on Saturday, all you have to do is agree to watch a, uh, a one-hour presentation uh, that we will we'll give you. It's a marketing presentation. And then and dinner is on us and all of this stuff. Well, what they do is they'll bring you in at 10.30 a.m. 
because they know you, you're not going to have lunch before 1030 AM. Right. Mm -hmm. And they sit you in the waiting room until about 1230. Right. So now, now you are starting to get hungry for lunch. And then the presentation starts at 1230. Right. And then that takes an hour. And then they want to show you some, some of the properties. Right. And then they want to BS you on how great all this whole package is going to be. Before you know it, it's, it's 5 p.m. And then they want you to make a decision. So you're exhausted. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people we know are less likely to detect BS if they are fatigued, if they're what we call the self regulatory resources that are, are the resource, the mental resources that you use to maintain, to change and maintain your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And when people are depleted of those basic psychological resources, they don't always make the best decisions. They don't always behave in the ways that they normally would if they are full of these resources, right? And detecting BS and even producing BS are affected by these resources. And what they do is they drain them, and then they ask you to make a decision. But even in those cases, if you ask enough follow-up questions People will usually come to reasonable decisions if they've got good information. Mm-hmm. When they don't have good information or incomplete information, they often make very poor decisions. Okay. Well, John, this is a lot of great stuff. I want to shift gears and hear about a couple of your favorite things. Could you now tell us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yes. My favorite quote actually is by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he says, when you know how to think, it empowers you far beyond those who know only what to think. And how about a favorite book? Yeah, it's got to be Harry Frankfurt's On Bulk, but I think a close second would have to be anything by F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. It's just a beautiful, the writing is just beautiful, and, and that'd have to be a close second. And is there a particular nugget you share that seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you a lot? Well, I would say that what I've been trying to do with this, with the book too, is just to normalize calling BS. And when I think people have commented that, well, you know, some of the things I've talked about in earlier talks and in my research that they've read, they said, you know, this actually works. And you don't have to use the word BS. You can do it in a very considerate way and maybe even in a, in a private way such that people don't feel uncomfortable being called on their BS. Because as you probably know, that it, calling BS can be a serious conversation killer and perhaps fighting words in some parts. So I would think that doing it in a considerate way works best and maybe even in private. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, I'm available on Twitter as John V. Petro, or you can look me up at Wake Forest University Psychology. You'll find me there. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I say call to action would be to, I think this would be for leaders and for managers, especially to try to create a communicative culture that is open to asking questions, one that is open even to possibly challenging one of the most frequently used BS words in all of the workplace is best practice Mm -hmm. to challenge things like that and to just create sort of an atmosphere to make that kind of thing okay. And I think decision-making will be much more optimal in that type of communicative culture. All right. John, this has been a pleasure. I wish you much success and and BS-free exchanges. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. I loved, loved, loved John's distinction between an explanation and evidence. 
Those are different things. And yet I too have often said, okay, that seems like a reasonable explanation. That's cool. That's fine. Sure. And there may be a time and a place where it's acceptable to simply roll with an explanation. But note, there is a whopping difference between explanation and evidence. And a couple extra questions can get you there. And what came to mind for me was, I think about a lot of sort of health claims like this diet or this exercise approach is going to give you strength or drop fat or create whatever result. And it makes sense. And they give you an explanation associated, well, the, the mitochondria in your body are challenged by the whatever. Da, 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 da. You think, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I've heard of mitochondria. They, they make energy. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, cool. And yet it's rather rare for there to be some actual evidence. And when you dig into the evidence, it's like, oh, actually, that's not statistically significant relative to just doing the normal alternative there. Oh, okay. There you have it. Explanation versus evidence. A fantastic alliterative distinction that I think I'll be holding on to and using for a lifetime. And I hope you will too. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP696. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.